what what happens if there are distractions suddenly if you if you have any if we need to pause we need to pause that's not a big deal okay then are you right. are you expecting distractions uh the only thing might be my dog might start barking <laughs> oh what kind of dog do you have i've got a poodle okay yeah she's actually asleep there in the beanbag behind me but oh. um yeah and, and what's her name <laughs> her name's ginger ginger cute yeah well, I hope that Ginger has a nice, calm podcast recording, as we will. Yes, me too. So many, so many, so many damn books. Hello, everybody, and welcome to So Many Damn Books. My name is Christopher, and this is A Blessing, A Curse, and a Podcast. I am sitting here in the Zoom hyperspace with someone coming in from the far reaches of Japan, Alison Watts. Alison is the translator of the novels Sweet Bean Paste by Durian Sukagawa, Spark by Naoki Matayoshi, and The Asawa Murders and Fish Swimming in Dappled Sunlight by Riku Anda. She is a longtime resident of Japan, and she is the translator of the book The Boy and the Dog by Seishu Hase. I am so excited to have you on, Alison. I've always wanted to have a translator on the show, and I am so glad that you were able to put a time aside from your busy schedule to do this. Uh, it's uh, totally my pleasure, Christopher. I'm honored to be your first translator and also thrilled to be talking about boy and the, the boy and the dog with you. This is my first opportunity to talk about it. So there's oh, a that's, lot to say. That's <laughs> so exciting. That's, that's really exciting. So the drink, I always make a cocktail inspired by the book, but um, when I was talking through your publicist, uh, you said, no cocktail, don't make, don't make a cocktail with sake, just drink cold sake with this one. So I went out and I bought, um, I don't know much about sake. I, it's, uh -huh. it's something that's a little opaque to me. Um, right. So I bought a Junmai Komodo. Oh, nice, nice. Yeah, sake is the perfect drink for this book, I thought, because sake is the national drink of Japan, really. And it's made from rice. And there are so many connections between sake and all kinds of daily life, rituals in daily life, and to religion and nature. So it's, yeah, I, I thought it was a good match. <laughs> and when you drink sake, I mean, in Japan, people don't just drink. They always have something to eat as well. So that's why I suggested you have something something to go with it. I stopped by my local Japanese market and grabbed mm. some um, rice crackers wrapped in seaweed. Oh, good, good. And Perfect. they're absolutely delicious. I won't yeah. crunch into my microphone right now, but I've, yeah. been, I've been eating them as I, as I was getting ready to record. And ooh, they are addicting. You can really just Aren't eat, eat, and eat. <laughs> Yeah, and, and healthy for you too. So are they? I, I mean yeah. it seems like a lot of salt, but um, maybe not. Salt. But the seaweed part, you get a lot of iron in that. Um, oh. so you live in Japan. Yes. How long have you been there? Um I've lived here thirty-four years now. And you're you moved there from Australia? That's right, yeah. Okay. I was born in Australia. Um so yes, I've lived over half my life here now. Uh, but actually, this time next year, I will we'll be moving back to Australia. So that's kind of going to wow. be... Wow. Yeah, a, a, a real wrench for me, but it's time. Were you planning on spending 34 years in Japan when you first moved there? Uh, not at all. I came here for a year and stayed for two. Then I got married and I've been here 34 years now. So, wow. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> it's, that's what I think too. I sort of can't quite believe how my life turned out, but. Yeah. yeah. Sometimes you do that. You look around at what you've wrought for yourself. Like, wait a minute, was this how I planned it? Or is this how it just happened? Yeah. I'd love to know. This is the next section of the show. And I would also particularly like to know, what did you buy? Have you bought any interesting books or anything wonderful recently? 
I have bought something wonderful. Actually, last week I went on a trip to Kyoto, which is at the other side of Japan from where I live. So it was the ancient capital of Japan before Tokyo for over a thousand years. And Kyoto is this city in a basin and it had, when it was the capital, it had this um, thriving merchant and artisan culture and it's, it's full of beautiful temples and gardens. It's the place that everybody goes to when they come to Japan. They want to go and see Kyoto. But I actually haven't been there for 30 years because it's so far away and COVID and everything. So after 30 years, I went there and I bought myself a copper wire mesh coffee dripper. Okay. <laughs> this is one of the, uh, yeah, one of these ancient arts and the wire mesh products. So all kinds of wire mesh products uh, for straining food or straining tea. And I got this amazing um, coffee, coffee dripper, which I'm really thrilled with. So I'm just I'm making my coffee with that every day and it, admiring the workmanship in it and, and the taste of the coffee that comes from that. So And it's a great souvenir of Kyoto as well. That's so lovely. Yeah, yeah that's that. I do feel like um, when I travel to a new place, I often end up with another type of coffee maker. Um, mm -hmm. I, I feel like I could go through maybe a week and a half without making coffee the same way every day because, oh, really? <laughs> because of my personal <laughs> dumb coffee making collection. Um, so oh. I understand the, the siren call of a new coffee maker. Yes. And I think um, maybe that would be a reason for you to visit Japan someday, Christopher. Oh. It is a dream of mine. Absolutely. You know, I, I want to visit. Well, I, I also got something interesting. I, I, I picked up uh, in the, in the realm of translation, there's a new translation of Bambi by Felix oh. Salton. Um, and so this is the, this is the book that it, the Walt Disney animated film is based on. And it's yeah. been, it was translated a hundred years ago when it came out, but this right. is one of the very first new translations a new translation by a person named Damien Searles. Oh. And it's put out by the New York Review of Books. And yeah. I am, it got an incredible review. And it sort of says like, because Bambi was made into a children's film, a lot of people think of it as a children's book. But yeah. when it came out, it was just a novel. It wasn't necessarily yeah. just for kids. So I'm really excited to discover this text. I've, I've, I love the movie yeah. and I am, very interested to read the I, I've never read any of the text. So I'm I'm very curious to dive in and see this classic of nature writing. Yeah, I'm fascinated to learn about that. I had no idea that uh, Bambi was written in another language and that it was a novel. What was the original language? Do you know? It's Italian. So yeah. Well, I guess, yeah, Bambi, when you think about it, it is a <laughs> yeah. it's an Italian sounding word, isn't it? Yeah, exactly. And it shows you just how much difference translation can make and different translations of the same texts can put an entirely different slant on a book. Yes. Yeah. Absolutely. And I feel like that's the perfect segue into the life and the world of the translator. How did you come, <laughs> how did you come to translating? What brought you to translating Japanese texts or translating at all? Well, I, I started to, I didn't actually learn Japanese until after I married. And, and I learned it because I thought if I'm going to live here and want to do something really interesting, I have to know the language. So I, I started doing self-study at home because I don't live anywhere near a big city or Japanese schools and um, eventually found a job in a Hitachi elevator and train factory. <laughs> and as an English odd job person. And while I was there, I started doing, um, they fixing up their texts and their manuals and things, and then sort of moved on to trying a little bit of translation myself. And then after that, I quit and I became a freelance commercial translator for many years, about 20 years. But in 2016, I, um, I switched to, becoming a full-time literary translator. I, I felt like I had to succumb to my destiny. I couldn't avoid it anymore because that was the thing I enjoyed doing most. So yeah, I haven't looked back since then, calling myself a full-time translator. Wow. Translator. So it's yeah. relatively 
recent. It's in your uh, 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 translating novels. Yes, that's right. That's relatively recent. Although I did translate a book that's, it's not a novel. It was a, um, a memoir, a travel memoir that was published back in 2007. And that was about um, uh, a journey in China and Tibet. Uh, it's called Tao on the Road and on the Run in Outlaw China. And doing that, that was kind of a passion project, a book I read and I thought, oh, I have to translate this. Because uh, before studying Japanese, I'd originally studied Chinese and I'd gone to China and I'd gone to Tibet. And I just, um, I felt like I had such a deep knowledge of that and the times and that book that I was born to translate that book. So I did that. And I guess that's what lit my, um, the spark in me for literary translation. I realised that that's what you could do. But, you know, so many things happened. Um, commercial translation, raising a family. It, it was a long time before I could actually get round to doing novels in Japanese. Right. <laughs> but I finally found, found my way here, yeah. How did you come to The Boy and the Dog, I guess? What is the process from, did, did you try to get on the book and you wanted to translate it or do you have a, I, I don't know anything about the world, so I'd love, to, right. I'd love some more insight. So I don't know if you've happened to notice it all, but there's been a spate of um, best-selling books about cats um, translated into English. And it, it's it, almost to the degree it's quite ridiculous. Um, I, <laughs> I mean, I, I don't think the people that are translating those books are my friends and colleagues, so I don't begrudge it to them at all, but I just think it's quite funny that it's, why all these books about cats? And I kept joking to everybody that, look, I'm going to do for dogs what, <laughs> what you've done for cats. <laughs> so I've sort of had my eye out for a dog book. And then this um, Hasisan's book won an important literary prize two, um, two years ago in July 2020. And as soon as it won the prize, that's when I heard of the book for the first time and I read it immediately. But when I read it, I thought, I irrespective of the fact that it was a dog book I just loved it so much I could not put it down I thought I just have to translate this book I really want to translate so I contacted the publisher and told them of course and they knew me already and we had a fairly good relationship and they said oh there's an agent who's really interested in trying to sell this book so about a month after the book won the prize the three of us um, got together and we had a discussion about you know how we'd sell it and what parts to um, focus on and then in um, October so every year in October there's a really big Im important event in Frankfurt where a lot of the book rights are traded and um, bought and sold so that's a, um, an important um, date in the calendar so I was asked to prepare some materials for the um, Frankfurt book fair a synopsis and a sample translation which I did, and um, the agent sold it almost immediately. And I, very soon after that, I heard from the commissioning editor at Viking Press. And uh, so we got to work on hammering out a contract, and I started translating, much to my delight. <laughs> it, it is a delightful read. It's heartbreaking. It's funny. It's, it's sad. It, it's it's It really covers all of the emotions um for for the people at home who might not be familiar with the book do you want to give a, a short summary of of the boy and the dog okay well um it's a series of um six linked stories about a dog um who's who seems to be traveling from the north of japan down to the south and each story is um yeah, features a different characters like there's the man and the dog, the prostitute and the dog, the boy and the dog, the um, what else is there? The thief and the dog. So yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, I don't know. I I'm so close to it. I can't really say anymore. What about you? How would you describe it? Well, I would say that it, the the dog shows up and he's sort of somewhat guardian, somewhat guide to a better or a more interesting part of the person's life. Um, they, it reminded me of, it's funny, there's this Canadian 
children's show called mm. The Littlest Hobo, which is a very yes. terrible name for a TV show, but it um, it came out in the 90s and it really actually reminded me very much of this book. It's about a dog who shows up and gets caught up in people's lives. And then after like the climax, he disappears into the forest to go find another yeah. family or person to whose life to enrich. And that is exactly what sort of is going on here. Although it's also quite violent. And I, I, I was doing a little bit of research on Seishu Hase's life but or his um body of work where does yeah. this stand in his oeuvre right so he um he's mostly known as a um a writer of noir and in fact i always i describe this book as dog noir actually or canine noir <laughs> um because it has all those characters which is typical of noir writing sort of morally compromised characters and um each yeah the, the main character in each story that the dog finds is, is it has something um that yeah they're having trouble with so yeah he he's particularly known for that and um yakuza novels he's also a game writer but he's a um a very passionate dog owner and <laughs> he uh, I was when he when he won this prize I was reading the things he said and he said like you know it was one of these stories that I, I just felt I could not not write and he decided to write it because he read a, a translated book um, some kind of crime mystery book that featured a dog and he didn't think that the dog in that book behaved um, naturally it wasn't okay. Whereas, and he could do better, so he tried. But I think that's one of the things that I really, really liked about this dog. It's not anthropomorphizing. It's not written from the dog's point of view. You know, like we don't know what goes on in the dog's head. You, you hear what the humans around him speculate as mm -hmm. to what he's thinking or doing, but we, it's, we don't know. And, and that's part of the mystery of what is going on in the dog's head and the dog's heart. That's... Yes, he's always facing a, a, a certain direction. He's always yeah. like looking a certain way, like he's he's not quite where he needs to be. But that's all we know about yeah. Tamon. Yeah. Um, that's right, um, Tamon, yeah, and Tamon Ten. So his name, and that was another really uh, interesting thing we learn in the first chapter is called Tamon, Tamon Ten. And um, I think that name was just a stroke of genius, actually. Because Tamon Ten, it comes from, you know, um, is one of the four guardians of the Buddha. And one of the guardians of the, um, so he has four garden, uh, guardians in each cardinal direction. Tamon Ten is the guardian of the north. So immediately that, that gives a kind of a resonance of some sort of mystical <laughs> um, nature about him. And Tamon Ten, the god, is no... Um, sweet being he's quite a fierce looking <laughs> god he's a warrior he's the god of warriors he's a protector he's a protector of the weak and the innocent so there's a strength um that comes from that name and and that's inferred in in tamon the dog as well i i loved that and i love this dog i mean I didn't want anything bad to happen to him. I, I just, are you, I mean, anytime a dog shows up in fiction, I just want them to win. Like I want them to win the book. I don't know necessarily yeah. what that, what that'll mean. Um, yeah. But I was totally brought along here. What are the challenges of translating a book like this? Were, were there any parts that really tripped you up or are there concepts in Japanese that are sort of difficult to translate over into American English? Well, for one, I think the that the name and the spiritual resonances of that name, I thought that that was something that probably didn't come through as strongly in the English as in the Japanese, but there's not much I can really do about that. I just trust that people will Google if they can. You don't want to um, overload the text with, <laughs> you know, with all these didactic little footnotes or excess you know, <laughs> information. But I just, as much as I, you might I, want to. Yeah, as much as you might want to. So I just, 
you know, like I'd either add a few words into dialogue, I'd slip into the dialogue, like Tamontan, you know, the guardian, protector deity, that sort of thing. I, I put a few clues um, in the text. But I think perhaps the biggest challenge for, for this book was the style, because it's written in very spare um, language. And, and that is actually extremely difficult to translate. <laughs> Uh, because you, you know you can't uh, you don't have a lot to play with and um, Japanese and English are very different in in the conventions of both languages for example Japanese writing accepts a lot more um, tolerates a lot more repetition of words and phrases than English does so when you're writing in English you can't you know, you can't begin with the same word at the same sentence all the time and repeat the same vocabulary. So but those those parts and then getting the overall rhythm of the prose as well, that was something um, I found quite challenging. Um, so, yes, this working on the style, I guess, was the, the, <laughs> the hardest thing. And you, you kind of know how many times I rewrote that opening paragraph. That was... <laughs> <laughs> the first line is the most important and yeah i tried out so many things but i'm gonna read to the to the people at home what this first paragraph is so that they know what we're talking about here because i think it is it it's so evocative and it really does bring you so much into the world of this book there was a dog in the corner of the convenience store parking lot it had a collar but no leash it was skinny but looked alert Maybe the owner was inside the store. Maybe the dog belonged to a disaster victim. Such were Kazumasa Nakagaki's thoughts as he parked his car. <laughs> oh, I mean, that's your first view of the dog. That's also just the first view of this person who is immediately empathizing. They're already thinking about the inner life of the dog. So you're already putting... And the dog is a mirror. He ends up being a mirror for the person who is with them. And I love that about dogs, that they mm. can do that, that they, a dog accepts its surroundings in a way, yeah. especially Tamon. Um, yeah. Talk to me about dogs in fiction and, and what dogs mean to you when you meet them in a book. Oh, so, yeah, I think there is something really, really special about dogs and the relationship between humans and dogs that this book captures perfectly something almost mystical it's different to cats in a way and there's always uh, dogs are the one creature that have lived been domesticated and lived closely with humans so I don't know I grew up with dogs and I just love them <laughs> and I have my dog here as well um when I was a kid, I loved Tintin and Snowy. Do you know that, mm -hmm. that cartoon? Yeah. Of course. <laughs> yeah, Tintin and Snowy. But I guess I don't like talking dogs that much. I don't like talking animals. So Okay. Yeah. <laughs> As I said before, I, um, I'm leaving here next year. I'm actually going through all my things and tidying up, you know, 35 years of life. And I'd never realised before, but my whole life I've been taking random pictures of dogs that I meet anyway. <laughs> I don't know. Whenever I meet a dog, I just see it as another friendly being um, I just want to meet and and commune with for a little bit. And I think they make the world a better place. <laughs> I fully agree. I've, I have my dog at home here, and anytime yeah. I meet a a dog in fiction, I just think, well, what would my dog Ramona think of this dog? You know, what would yeah. would Ramona and Timon, you know, hang out? The answer is probably no, because Ramona is quite small and Timon is like a medium to larger sized dog. And they yeah. don't usually get along. But I I still I, I am the owner of that dog as I'm reading this book. Like I kept loving yeah. each section because it really is everybody sees this dog for what they want to see. Yes, yes. Even though, of course, he also is giving off his own vibe and, and, and life. Did you, did you have a favorite section? Was there some character that was the most fun to be translating? Um, I think my favorite one was Yaichi, the hunter. Oh, 
Mm -hmm. uh, that just broke my heart. That <laughs> you know, like you can just see what I can just picture that man. You know, like one of these people, Japanese men who can't show their emotions, or you know, has so much trouble relating to people around him, but he could communicate with dogs. And oh, he, I just cried so many times <laughs> when I was translating this. I just thought it was. I won't say what happens at the end, but yeah. Oh, it's, it is, it, it does take you on, on quite a journey. You go all over Japan with this dog. It, it really, the, the notes, is, but it, I mean, it does, it hits crime. It hits um, sort of relationship novels and also ha it falls into fable as well. There's, there's a character who's the most frustrating character in the book, I think is, is in the couple who is this <laughs> sort of, guileless like has no um everything slops off of him easily this character who is so frustrating but you you see how he loves the dog but still is unable to give a dog what he needs because he can't give any anybody what they need i i i was completely that was a frustrating section <laughs> Yes, and also i think that sex that story was very intriguing too so you know like when I was translating that, I was looking very, very carefully at the key scene at the end, thinking, okay, what is Tamon doing here? <laughs> and choosing my words very carefully and rereading the, the original text over and over because I didn't want to infer too much, but I had my opinion of to what he was doing. But <laughs> <laughs> I, I am I'm so excited for people to discover this book and 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 read it. Um, you've had a, you've translated a few novels. Another one that I was I, I've read, um, Spark, is a completely oh, you, different. You read that? Yeah, it's a completely <laughs> different thing. Yeah, fully a different world. It's a different writing style. Like I can see that it's not the same yeah. sort of language at all, and it's. Yeah. The hardest thing in the world it's translating jokes yes because yeah. it's these are these are stand-up comedians um yeah. that world <laughs> so spark is a is a fascinating novel and I, i'd love to know what's it like to translate a novel like spark versus a novel like the boy and the dog yeah so spark is probably the hardest novel i've ever translated um so the boy and the dog uh, was a prize-winning novel. It won the Nauki Prize, which is a prize given for um, the best of popular literature. And Spark also won a, a prize, the Akaguto one, which is given to a debut novelist. So I guess you could say that's the difference between a, you know, a first-time novelist and a mature novelist. So Spark is full of uh, ideas that are perhaps not fully um, explored or drawn out and and it, it was extremely difficult to compress what the author was saying um, and as you said translating that the humor that was um, that was the real challenge but and it's a completely different style so with with every book you have to immerse yourself in the world of that style. I don't want every book I translate to sound like Alison Watts. So <laughs> The Spark, I can't remember what I read for that. But anyway, I try to read lots of books in similar genres in English and, and find different authors that I can perhaps borrow from or, or break down their, analyse their style and their pattern and sentence patterns and vocabulary. And that, so that's how I do it, basically. But for Spark, there was a lot in there. Um, the humour, Manzai is not a very accessible humour in any language, I think. <laughs> yeah. So the that Manzai um, is is duo comedy. There's a straight man and a and sort of a yeah. goofy person, and they're and yeah. they're they're telling jokes rapid fire. I I had to. Yeah. I watched some. Um, clips on youtube because i wanted to know what it was and it it is very strange um, it, yeah coming at it from but, a, a western perspective it, it is but also months life's interesting because that has really really uh long long stretches way back in time to 
the shrines to the kami. It's the same as with tamon. Um, its or origins are in shrine, going around at shrines at New Year and telling jokes and chasing out gods. So um, there's that aspect of it too. Everything is connected in Japanese culture somehow to the yeah, to the gods, basically. And that's what uh, they're doing. You know, they're telling jokes is a form of um, yeah, form of veneration to the gods in in Spark. Right. I mean, they they say that it's you should be performing to the gods like that even if there's no one no one yeah. watching you there's still some gods around yeah you're doing it for the <laughs> for the gods that's right so yeah and that's why um sake you know sake is always um at, if you go to any shrine there will be like some um sake there for the gods as well <laughs> so it's all connected it yeah. is all connected and mountains, mountains are homes of the gods too. Um, so that's why, uh, you know, Tamon's journey through the mountains was kind of a sort of a spiritual journey as well. Um, oh, absolutely. Yeah. Do you always have your translator mind on when you're reading Japanese? Like, do you, are you, whenever you're reading a Japanese novel, are you thinking like, oh, I should, I should be translating this one? Or, um, or are you always like holding, or can you hold yourself back from that? Well, not so much anymore because I'm actually overloaded with books to translate. <laughs> so well, that's a nice place to it, be. It is, yeah, it is. Um, I've just uh, this last week finished translating another one, which will be coming out next year, and it's, it's called "What You Are Looking For Is in the Library," which is <laughs> a great title and a great title. Yeah. So with Japanese books, it's rare these days that I. I read in Japanese just simply for pleasure. I just don't have the time. And also in English as well, because I've got to read in two languages. I'm always trying to read books to um, match up with the book, book I'm currently translating. So um, I guess the only time I actually read for pure pleasure is when I'm on holiday and in the half hour before I go to sleep at night. <laughs> what were you reading for? While you were working on the boy and the dog, what was what were your key texts? Um, so one of them, I was I tried to read noir. One of I read Razorblade, Razorblade Tears by S. A. Cosby. Mm. So I really enjoyed that, and that was a great lesson in um, what expanding what you could do with with noir style writing and you know, looking. Ah, oh, he's a brilliant writer. It's Absolutely, so yes. Yeah. So, um, yeah, I looked at his, I looked at some of the authors that um, Hase-san is influenced by, uh, Elmer Leonard and Raymond Carver, Ernest Hemingway, but I didn't really feel like any of them were particularly, I could transfer them directly to this book. So I guess it was a blend of, yeah, different different writers. But um, Do you read them? Those, like, would you read a Raymond Carver story, like, translated into Japanese and then translated back out to sort of see how someone else has, has done that? Or or is it... Uh... Uh, no, no. I just more or less go foraging. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Um, and, for example, on my Kindle, uh, I'll download lots of samples of authors I might, I might want to, might think uh, could be useful and see if the samples fits the style I'm looking for and if it does I'll download the book and then I'll make lots of notes and highlights and words I could steal or phrases I could use perhaps <laughs> in my translation so yeah it seems like the work of a translator is like a work of a plunderer in some ways like it seems like you're 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 going treasure hunting I am I always think of myself as like foraging for words <laughs> I'm always making notes and writing them down on post-its and, and uh, memos to, to yeah, use for later on. You recommended a book mm. for me to read in, in concert with The Boy and the Dog, which um, was one I'd already read, actually. I read it when it first came out. Peter Heller's The Dog Stars. Um, yeah. 
I read it and it came out a decade ago, which was a huge surprise to me, by the way, because yeah. it has stuck with me. And I thought that it, you know, in the way that you always think that everything just happened a couple of years ago, it yeah. was, it was very surprising that the couple of years ago was 10 years ago when this <laughs> book came out. I'd love for you to tell me why you brought the dog stars by Peter Heller um, as your recommendation. Well, like you, that's a book that has stuck with me. Um, I think I bought it in about 2016 or, yeah, probably about 2015 or 16 uh, when I was actually in um, Denver Airport because <laughs> wherever I go I like to try and find bookshops and mm-hmm. airports that bookshops because there's no bookshops in where I live here in this town and I picked that up as a local book because I like the title and then I just loved it and I read it a couple of times the scene where Jasper dies I think is the saddest dog scene (laughs) I've read this is a this is a decade old old book and I I will say that's not a spoiler because it really happened in the first third of the book so anybody who's and also there's a whole website called does the dog die.com uh, for movies, TV shows, and books, where you oh. can, if if you are uh, susceptible to dogs passing away in your entertainment, you can you can save yourself. Uh, oh. the, but the dog stars is a book. It's because most of the book is actually about the grief of what happens if your dog dies. Like, is the mm-hmm. world even? Yeah. Does the whole world hold anything yeah. <laughs> after your dog dies? <laughs> I mean, there there's a, a common interpretation of Cormac McCarthy's The Road, mm-hmm. which is sort of like what happens if my, it, as because Cormac McCarthy, I guess, became a father very late in life. And he was just thinking like, what if I die and that my kid has to be living without me? He'll be living in a sort of, his own post-apocalypse, the post-apocalypse of losing your, using, losing your elderly father. Yeah. And I think in that same um, one-to-one sort of interpretation, you can say that the dog stars is truly like, is the world worthwhile after your dog dies? <laughs> exactly. Everything is a before and after in that book, isn't it? Of after Jasper dies. But I, you know, I started rereading it again because I'd recommended it to you and I haven't read it since before the pandemic so reading it post-pandemic well not post actually but (laughs) right it's it yeah it kind of resonated in different ways and also reading it post translating the boy and the dog that's it resonated for me in different ways because there were things I noticed this time around for example the relationship uh, between dogs and wolves is quite is subtly highlighted in there you know like the the wolves are gradually encroaching on the perimeter from the mountain but Mm -hmm. jasper is you know jasper is this domesticated dog always by um his owner's side but there is this kind of wild part for him like he really relishes eating the jerky made from humans (laughs) so and and Hig is always torn between, you know, these two ways of living to be to be like his Bangley, his companion, who's just like this military nut and just shoots at him, <laughs> or, or, or to live a gentler, sort of more poetic um, kind of life. Absolutely. And I also I also feel like since this book has come out, and even before post-apocalyptic fiction has really taken on a new shape and and has and has become far more complicated you know when yeah. i think of like severance by lang ma or uh station 11 even I... by emily st john mandel these yeah. are novels that are deeply complicated though the world is compl- has become complicated um, yeah. Even after everything, but in the dog stars, Peter Heller seems to think things it's, would be simplified. That it would, that life would be taken down to its bare bones, and maybe that's better. And maybe that has something to do with this being his first novel. Yeah. Um, and he's a nature writer by trade beforehand. Yeah. Um, 
you discover I realized when I read read it through this time that he makes reference to the um the Andes that you know the plane crash that the soccer team that went down in the, in the Andes and I think the film Alive was based on that and I remembered that since I had last read the Dog Stars I've actually read a book written by one of the survivors of the Andes um oh wow yeah and I have to recommend that because it's brilliant it's called Out of the si- um, Out of the Silence After the Crash by Eduardo Strout and it's about how that changed his life um and what he learned from that experience and the over the overwhelming lesson from that book is being on the mountain he learned about to become one with the mountain and about the value of um, self-knowledge and finding self-knowledge through silence and spirituality and poetry and music and art and I feel that at in essence that's what um Peter Heller is trying to express too, like poetry and Tang poets, Tang dynasty poets feature a lot in in the Dog Stars. So, yeah, um, that expression of spirituality is perhaps what the goal should be for us, no matter what the circumstances are. Yeah, yeah, that, that resonates with me. Are you drawn to post-apocalyptic fiction in other realms or is was was this a special one for you? Um, I am to a certain degree. Uh, actually, another post-apocalyptic book I, I remembered reading, and I remembered I'd read it a long time ago, but uh, On the Beach by Neville Shute. Have you heard of it or read it? So- I, I'm just about to get my my library copy of that of that and oh, i i realize right. where i am in line i'm a, i'm just it's yeah. just coming through the line because i immediately thought of that after reading the dog stars again and it's i mean it was written in 1957 so it's quite old you know over a half a century now and it's set in melbourne at the mm. which is on the southernmost coast of australia and after there's been a a nuclear war between uh, China and Russia <laughs> and so the northern hemisphere has been wiped out and the people in Melbourne are just or southern Australia are just like they know that doomsday is coming that like so it's like living in the face of death and what society is like then so I mean this book was written and Neville Shute was English and he, an Englishman who immigrated to Australia and he was an engineer so, so it's the style is kind of it's so old, but it's very chilling. Mm. Uh, it's so ordinariness, you know, like they're very civilised. Melbourne is quite a conservative sort of society where they drink their pink gins and <laughs> so all that quaint, dated language against this chilling background of a nuclear war and imminent death and doom, It's um, it gives a really eerie, uncanny <laughs> effect. Um, Absolutely, yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, yeah. I I am fascinated by Neville Shute's work. I mean, A Town Like Alice is a classic uh-huh. that I really love. Um, yeah. And so I, I've been meaning to read On the Beach Forever because it's a seminal yeah. work in the in the canon. <laughs> yes, yeah. <laughs> so... <laughs> of imagining the end of the world. Yes, I know. And, and how we face it. Um, that book on the beach that the scene that sticks with me most is a grand prix they have a grand prix car race and so everyone's <laughs> driving their ferraris and and then start bringing out all the other cars and well this is the end of the world so they just drive to the limit and yeah yeah why not <laughs> It's yeah. it's so funny when you can compare that to Peter Heller's post apocalypse. I just I I really feel like he was trying to be be as spare as possible. There's so few characters, there's yeah. so even little conflict. The conflict is all within. It's all um, I I I listened to the to it this time. Mark Deakins reads the audiobook and it is yeah. a really a uh, lovely experience if you've read this once and you were wondering if it was time to reread it 
listening to it can bring a new valence uh-huh. to the text. And I was most noting that it's just, it, it's a much sadder book than I remembered. I know it was sad when I first read it, but it's, yeah. it's, it's truly just about grief, grief for the yeah. world as it used to be as for, for a life that used to include his wife uh, yeah. and then grief for losing your dog which all of that is very familiar, um, but it's, except for the losing the world part, I guess. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah. but it's also extremely beautiful. The language is just so uh, uh, concise and and poetic and just it's full of absolutely beautiful images. You you could open it up to any page and find there some phrase or or sentence that will just slice your heart. yeah. Yeah. Well, it was great to re-experience it, and it's it's also so lovely to come to a book ten years later because you really do get a um, a nice perspective on the person that you were when you first read it. Um, yeah. And so there there is that lovely thing if you can wait ten years between rereading a book that you <laughs> liked, you can really it's it's a great way to take some. <laughs> self-stock i found uh, some journal entries that i wrote while i was reading this book and it was obviously quite affecting for me <laughs> oh that must have been an interesting journey <laughs> yeah so i i really thank you for recommending um this book to for me to you didn't know i was revisiting it but i'm glad yeah. you glad you brought it back up because i i mean i i'm not sure i would have ever thought about it again other than uh, as something to reread. I, I'm not sure I would have put that on my list of like, oh, I need to absolutely be sure to reread that book. And I'm so glad that I did. Um, mm-hmm. But I'd, I'd love to know what else you recommend. Do you recommend other things for this is the oh, recommendation okay. part of the show. <laughs> so I would like to recommend another book I've translated, actually. And okay. you mentioned it in your introduction is Sweet Bean Paste by Durian Skagawa. Um, so that was the first book I translated after I decided to become a full-time literary translator. And um, it's, it was published in 2017 by One World Publications in the UK. And it didn't have a lot of you know, publicity or when it was launched. But a strange thing has happened over the last three years that it is boomed in popularity all around the world because wow. of the pandemic and okay it's one of these books that it uh, makes you feel better for having re- read it but it's like during this period when people have been you know in quarantine they've been unable to go out and they've had the chance to think about you know what's important to them and, and what's important about life this is a book that will help you teach you something, help you find, (laughs) focus your thoughts. Mm. Uh, So, yeah, and this too, like Hase-san, the style is is very spare Mm -hmm. and with flashes of poetry in it. So Mm -hmm. it's it's seemingly spare and simple, but there is just so many depths to it that... uh, keep you keep it in your mind and heart long after you finished reading it <laughs> well, I, I i ordered a copy it didn't arrive before uh this interview so i'm excited for it to show up because yeah. I, I i'm very excited to read it um, that brought up a question for me do you have a do you have a guiding light when you're translating is there something that you is like a an essence that you're that sort of drives you to this work? I think every book I do, I'm doing it because I want to be able to share that in English. So it just, uh, it occupies my head. (laughs) It occupies everything I do while in the course of doing it. So I guess it's my passion, I suppose, for that particular work, whatever I do, I'm, I'm doing it yeah so it's just it's like a radical act of sharing is really what it is yeah it's it's like the 
it's even more than just like giving somebody a copy of the book. It's like, I'm going to put this in the words you understand you need this that badly. Yeah. I, I feel, I feel like, um, I don't know, my role is to be sort of a medium between <laughs> this, this literary world and the English literary world. And I'm just sort of this kind of invisible <laughs> creature in between going between two worlds <laughs> and hopefully not becoming too visible in the process. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, there's there's a lively debate over how translators should be credited if they should be on the cover of books or if they should be in the background. Do you have a do you have a feeling there? Yes, absolutely. They should be on the cover, and because we are co-authors in a certain sense, it's like a marriage. The foreign language edition would not exist without the character, without the author, the translator, and Translation is not just a process of, you know, opening up a dictionary and changing one word for the other. There's so much um, creative writing required to be able to um, make it into a work that will be acceptable for English readers. So with The Boy and the Dog, I was thrilled this time actually to get my name on the cover for the first time because I do think, you know, that it is a, a work of, creation on the translator's part and they should be that should be acknowledged <laughs> i fully i'm fully with you i i, I completely agree because it is it, it and it's the reality of the book it, it isn't just the author it's it's you two together so yeah. um i was i was very happy to see that on the cover of this it's right right underneath yeah. Hase's name is translated from the japanese by Alison watts very yeah i think that is the right placement and um I, I think it's, I always think it's kind of sad when I see something that's translated, but the translator is, you have to flip through and find that name because I, I think it's, you know, in some ways it's, it's, it's somewhat false advertising. It's, you have to know who, who did the, the, that extra work to get it into your hands. Yeah. Well, there has been this idea in the publishing industry that like English readers don't like to know that they're reading a translation you know and it's it's bad bad for sales it's you know it's not good so that's another reason why I'm so happy with the boy and the dog um that Viking have put the title the original Japanese title in kanji which I I think is just great it's totally embracing the fact that this book is a translation and um showing it to the world that makes me really really happy that's so cool yeah I like that too I'm going to recommend a book as well. I just finished this um, a couple days ago and it's, I was totally surprised that I was so drawn to this book. Um, it's actually the sequel to the circle uh, yeah. by Dave Eggers, uh, the every by Dave mm -hmm. Eggers. I was, I was not expecting to like this book, but it, yeah. um, which is, I mean, I, I liked the circle, but didn't love it. Um, I just thought it was, sort of okay but not it didn't get into sort of the the muck that i thought was underneath the driving mm -hmm. force of that novel but the every absolutely does and if you were walk if you're reading the circle by dave eggers and you thought that was okay but i kind of wanted something more it's like he also agreed and then wrote a sequel to his book was like i'm gonna try to get a little bit deeper into this world um and it's very interesting to be reading the every right now as you're watch as as we watch Twitter and Facebook and all of these social networks seeming to be in their decline. Uh, mm -hmm. You you get a sense of what it, what might be happening behind the scenes and the sort of strange philosophies that are driving the type of unmitigated growth and then fast declines of these social networks mm, um interesting okay. and it's it's also extremely funny so the every by oh, Dave Eckers is, is um I, I i it's almost 600 pages and i did not feel that length at all mm. so so that is a really that is a really cool thing and can you remind me one more time out of the silence that was the name of the other book that you recommended um, yeah, Out of the Silence After the Crash by Eduardo Strauch, I think is how you say it, S-T-R-A-U-C-H. 
and that book is also a translation too from Spanish. <laughs> yeah. um, I think it what? only came out a few years ago. Yeah. Nice. So that's really worth um, reading, I think. Yeah, the thing about mountains. Because, oh, that's the other thing I wanted to say about the boy and the doll. It, and it's another reason why I, I loved it, because it's about mountains. Um, Japan is geographically about two thirds of the country is mountains. Like mm. you can't go anywhere and not, not see a mountain. But I do get the feeling that a lot of what is translated or people's perception of Japan is skewed by Tokyo. Yeah. <laughs> and the, the fact of Tokyo, I mean, it is a very unique place, but there is so much more. Um, and yeah, mountains are just central to life, to to cultural customs, to the religion, to everything. So this doll's journey through the mountains is uh, is a really yeah important image, I think. And it's a lovely image. I mean, I really um, I could feel them on the trail, on the way in the wild. I, I I just I just felt like that was a that was a great part of the book. Yeah. Did you notice the map in the book at the beginning? So I have the, an I have an oh. advanced copy, so I don't know if I was given oh, the map. Okay, so I, I wonder if the map is in there. So the map was created specially for this book. It says map and, TK. This is the problem with Oh, okay. With so, advanced Oh, it's really it's really cool. <laughs> yeah, and this map was hat does not have Tokyo on it. <laughs> <laughs> it's got every place in the book but no tokyo on it so that's uh yeah it's a unique map that um well, that is surprising <laughs> yeah to help the reader because i thought uh, you would have no idea what the scale of the journey is unless you look at a map but the places dog goes are not really um major locations so you, you wouldn't know where to find them if you didn't didn't have a map to help you so that's yeah great great feature see this is this is the um this is the problem with uh reading reading advanced reader copies of books i mean i get books early and they yeah. and the publisher sends me the book so that is a lovely thing yeah. but sometimes you miss out on these very cool late yeah. editions <laughs> uh like a like an illustrated map so i'm gonna have to find an actual copy of this book that isn't um a mass yeah. market paper back that they <laughs> made so that reviewers would read it um yeah. allison this has been so lovely i'm so glad that you could hang out with me um and take part of your morning and my mm -hmm. evening here uh mm -hmm. to to hang out with me um also oh to the people at home I highly recommend, uh, of course, buying a copy of The Boy and the Dog, um, translated by Alison Watts, written by Seishu Hase. It's an incredible novel. I really loved every moment of it. Um, and I also think that if you want to support the show, you know, it, you might want to support so many damn books. And if that's the case, what you need to do is, if you don't have any money to spend, just give me an iTunes review. It's been a while since I've gotten an iTunes review and they're extremely helpful for other people discovering the show. Also, just tell your friend to listen to so many damn books. And then you can also, if you have a couple dollars you'd like to chip in, patreon.com slash smdb is the place to do that. You get the show without any ads at all. Um, you also get a little bit of extra content with the authors that I hang out with. And you get to know the books that I'm going to be featuring before the books are featured on the show, as, lo as well as little things get sent in the mail sometimes. It's a nice time. The Patreon people have a lot of fun with me. and But mostly, it's about the books. It's about folks like you, Allison. I'm really, I really loved this book, and I'm really glad that we could hang out and talk about this world of translation because it's a completely wonderful world and i'm so glad that you're doing this work because it means that i got to hang out with tamon and i and i <laughs> and i love this dog okay thank you um it's been an absolute pleasure for me too you, you can't imagine I, I don't get 
this opportunity to talk about what I do or the books I translate very often at all. I've never done a podcast before, so you're the first. Oh, that's um, exciting. Yeah. So, yeah, it's been a real pleasure. Thank you, Christopher. I'll, I'll certainly recommend your podcast. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you so much, Alison, and uh, I will. I hope we get to cross paths again soon. Yeah, I do.